Thanks for downloading this Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. For more information on the centre, go to ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash chomi. In this episode, a recording from the medical training, student experience and the transmission of knowledge circa 1800 to 2014 symposium, which took place in the UCD Humanities Institute in October 2014. The symposium was organised by Laura Kelly of University College Dublin and was generously supported by the Irish Research Council and the Wellcome Trust. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording from Panel 5, Medical Education and Educational Reform in the 20th Century. The paper, Venereology at the Polyclinic, Postgraduate Study Among General Practitioners in England, 1899-1914, was given by Anne Hanley of the University of Cambridge. So as you can see from my title, I'm going to be looking at venereal diseases among medical practitioners at the turn of the 20th century. And more specifically, I will be addressing an important question of medical pedagogy, specifically how practitioners, after completing their years of generalist, undergraduate medical education, were able to build upon and to continue augmenting their medical knowledge. What channels of further systematised training were open to them? And my paper is innovative because I focus on venereological training, an otherwise overlooked subject in undergraduate medical education and medical specialism more broadly. And furthermore, I look at the place of venereological education in one specific postgraduate institution. So the Medical Graduates College and Polyclinic, it was important not only because it was one of the first such postgraduate institutions or because it was staffed by many eminent practitioners who were authorities in their various fields, but also because it was one of the only postgraduate colleges from this period for which there is an extensive archival record, uh, namely in the form of the college's monthly journal, The Polyclinic. The first half of my paper looks at the college itself and its place within an emerging landscape of English postgraduate medical education as well as its role in furthering the study of venereal diseases. The second half of my paper, I look more specifically at the particulars of this venereological training and the way that the college offered practitioners one of the few opportunities for the continued structured and systematised study of venereal diseases. And I do this by looking at one specific and diagnostically challenging venereal condition, namely Tabes dorsalis. I'll come back to that a bit later on. So to begin, the Medical Graduates College and Polyclinic was opened in London in 1899. Courses were intended to refresh the postgraduates' knowledge and to introduce them to new, specialised knowledge claims and clinical practices that received little attention at an undergraduate level. The Medical Graduates College therefore provides an important case study for understanding how venereological knowledge was produced and disseminated among the rank and file of the medical profession, rather than simply a core group of medical specialists at the turn of the 20th century. Institutionalised postgraduate training was the product of a specific professional landscape that informed English medical education and practice at the turn of the 20th century. It reflected a growing acceptance of medical specialism as a form of professional advancement and as a legitimate means of acquiring new knowledge. The pursuit of special knowledge was thought to be more suitable at a postgraduate level where it neither competed with undergraduate medical schools nor threatened the generalist nature of the undergraduate curriculum. So historians writing on 19th and early 20th century medical debates regarding modes of venereal disease, diagnosis, transmission and treatment 
have rarely considered the fundamental questions of neurological training among English medical practitioners, especially the rank-and-file general practitioner. It has generally been assumed that practitioners, either in their undergraduate medical education or in the course of their professional practice, acquired a working knowledge of the symptoms of venereal diseases as well as the common modes of treatment available to their patients. Yet the college's founder and foremost English authority on venereal diseases, Jonathan Hutchinson, my, uh, I'm a bit of a fangirl of him, <laughs> was convinced that a practitioner's ability to diagnose and treat venereal diseases was largely the product of individual professional experience and regulated by very little institutionalized training. It is likely that most practitioners acquired knowledge, of venereal, uh, acquired knowledge of how to diagnose common forms of congenital venereal infection. So you find that genital sores, chancres, rashes and discharges were very recognisable symptoms of acquired syphilis. I apologise for the images. The Hutchinsonian triad of interstitial keratitis, notched teeth and middle ear deafness was described as absolutely diagnostic of inherited syphilis. And similarly, severe conjunctival discharge, for which sadly I have no images, and the irritation in newborns was indicative of gonorrheal ophthalmia neonatorum. So these were very recognisable symptoms to practitioners at the time. But conditions like tabes dorsalis proved much more difficult to accurately diagnose and etiologically link to an underlying venereal infection. So if you experience diminished reflexes, unsteadiness, an increasing lack of coordination, periods of sharp pain, personality changes, dementia, deafness, or visual impairment, you may have been suffering the effects of tabes dorsalis or tertiary stage syphilitic deterioration of the nervous system. Sufferers experienced slow deterioration of the spinal cord nerves that carried sensory information to the brain. It was a condition marked by a series of symptoms that could not be easily characterized as syphilitic. So in the years before the development and wide application of the serodiagnostic Wasserman reaction around the First World War and into the interwar years, such tertiary stage neurological conditions remained a subject of much debate and uncertainty. So where could practitioners learn about these diagnostically challenging conditions? They occupied lectures at the Medical Graduates College and they filled the pages of the college's journal. So to give you an idea, here are some of the more commonly recognizable dermatological manifestations of tertiary stage syphilis. So we have cranial deterioration and facial gamata, and these were very, as I said, very recognizable symptoms of tertiary stage syphilis. But the neurological manifestations of syphilis, as demonstrated by this particular asylum inmate um, who has tabes dorsalis, were very difficult to diagnose. So you can see that he has the um, saddle nose that is indicative of congenital syphilis. But apart from that, there are no very obvious physical symptoms of infection. By the 1890s, many medical staff belonging to the London hospitals also held appointments at various special hospitals and postgraduate colleges. In these institutions, their special knowledge could be developed and employed in the treatment of patients and in the teaching of students. The organisation of the college reflected this wider landscape of professional practice. Many who lectured at the college were also involved with the teaching of undergraduates in their respective hospitals. But they built upon this foundational undergraduate knowledge by offering postgraduates more detailed study of such diagnostically challenging conditions like tabes dorsalis. That greater attention was given in the pages of the polyclinic to more uncommon or ambiguous conditions suggests that they were more likely to have been overlooked or misinterpreted by practitioners 
and therefore required further clinical study. The college constituted an important channel through which practitioners could pursue a structured, specialised venereological study uh, that would ideally improve their day-to-day clinical practice and in turn make their practice more economically viable. Teaching was intended to provide a more holistic theoretical framework within which to conceptualise these cases. So I've given you an idea of the overview, or I've given you an overview of the place of postgraduate education, and we'll now move on to some of the particulars of this venereological training offered to postgraduates at the Medical Graduates College. The college provided such instruction through consultations with patients uh, examined before groups of postgraduates. Subscribers with instructive cases under their care were encouraged to contact the medical superintendent of the college to arrange for these cases to be presented for consultation during clinical classes. And letters of recommendation were required from the family practitioner, as was a declaration that the patient was suitably ill and impoverished and therefore deserving of gratis consultation. And patients were presented to postgraduates who, guided by their lecturer, discussed the patient's history and their symptoms, as well as methods of diagnosis and the most effective forms of treatment. Some patients were referred because their illness was interesting and edifying to postgraduates. But in other cases, the referring practitioner sought a second opinion or wanted to improve their knowledge in a particular field. General practitioners who had insufficient knowledge or experience to treat particular cases could seek a second opinion. So the college's system of referral allowed general practitioners to receive information about their patient's condition whilst also giving consultants access to difficult or interesting cases that sort of fell within their specialist field of interest. So to give you an idea of the volume of clinical material passing through the college... Uh, In in September 1900, the college offered 17 consultations, at which 87 patients were presented for consultation. But by January of the following year, the college claimed to have received over 1,000 patients for consultation. So although its premises were quite small, there was quite a substantial volume of patients moving through its doors. (coughs) There is no discernible pattern of referral or acceptance for patients for consultation that each volume of the polyclinic contained a comparatively high proportion of articles devoted to venereal diseases suggests that deliberate emphasis was placed upon the dissemination of venereological knowledge. The initial decision to offer classes on the diagnosis and treatment of venereal diseases was an attempt to fill a perceived gap in medical knowledge. That large numbers of cases continued to be brought for consultation and demonstration and that large numbers of these were written up for publication in the college's journal, suggests that the college was responding to healthy attendance rates and an ongoing desire among general practitioners to receive such such education on venereal diseases. So in Michaelmas term 1914, the college introduced a special course of practical classes devoted to the diagnosis and treatment of venereal diseases. The first such course to be offered in England, as far as I'm able to tell. Uh, The establishment of the Royal Commission on Venereal Diseases in November 1913, the proceedings of which were regularly documented in the medical press, likely influenced the college's decision to hold this type of course. However, the establishment of the course also suggests that the study of venereal diseases was proving very popular among its general practitioners. And compared to the fragmented study of venereal diseases at an undergraduate level, the college provided a more systematised, if not entirely coherent, theoretical approach. Venereal cases were regularly, albeit somewhat haphazardly, 
brought before students as examples of various ophthalmic, dermatological, neurological, antenatal, or genitourinary conditions. In the years immediately following the college's formation, a course of six clinical lectures on general ophthalmology included an entire lecture on syphilitic infection of the eyes. The course on comparative pathology included a lecture on diseases of the genitourinary organs, in which syphilis always figured prominently. The course on practical biology offered laboratory-based experience in the diagnosis of diseases, including syphilis. And by the middle of 1900, the college's diagnostic laboratory services included tests for the gonococcus at a cost of three shillings and sixpence. The increasing prominence of venereology within wider specialisms, like dermatology and like ophthalmology, suggests that practitioners were becoming increasingly aware of the pervasive influence of venereal diseases upon different structures and functions within the body. Yet the more they understood about venereal diseases, the more they seemed unsuitable to be taught as a self-contained discipline. Such compartmentalization both acknowledged the importance of venereal diseases and their serious effects upon multiple parts of the body, whilst simultaneously subordinating the study of these diseases to other disciplines. The etiological cause of a patient's condition may have been venereal, but their symptoms were conceptually and diagnostically compartmentalized within other specialist disciplines. Students may have been exposed to a variety of more obscure forms of venereal infection, but the focus of each lecture or demonstration was often a single symptom or associated condition. The objective was to diagnose and to alleviate the discomfort caused by specific morbid conditions like ocular paralysis that was itself a symptom of tavis dorsalis, that was itself a condition manifested from tertiary stage syphilis. And lecturers continued to rely upon traditional empirical diagnostic practices that delineated symptoms according to the bodily structure or function affected. And as the neuropathologist Frederick Mott observed, a person in the early stages of tavis dorsalis might present themselves for treatment of one of several diagnostically challenging symptoms. So a spontaneous dislocation or fracture will take him to the surgeon and very possibly bladder trouble. A squint with double vision or failing sight, ending perhaps rapidly in blindness, will take him to the ophthalmic department. A fit or mental symptoms will take him to the neurologist. Each of these modes of onset of the disease is indicative of a special localised degeneration of some part of the nervous system. So medical familiarity with these various physical, physical modes of onset was necessary if doctors were to recognize an underlying venereal infection. And conditions like tabes dorsalis were particularly interesting because they manifested themselves in such multiple and often obscure ways. And because in the years before the serodiagnostic Wasserman reaction, their venereal etiology remained a subject of uncertainty and debate. So, in 1903, in the midst of all of these clinical conundrums, the college announced that it would begin offering a series of composite lectures. And this series was designed to supplement a focus on the symptoms of individual patients. These lectures suggest that individual cases with specific localised manifestations of disease were slowly being conceptualised as constitutional and to be interpreted and treated within an established body of medical knowledge. So the polyclinic asserted that it is impossible that clinical lectures should be exhaustive or approach completeness, and it is designed that these composite lectures shall supply the unavoidable deficiencies of those given with reference to cases of individual patients and shall offer systematic resumes of our knowledge respecting special forms of disease. Our lecturers are not to be required to produce the results of original research 
or to propound original views, but rather to give in clear language a sound exposition of the present state of knowledge concerning the subject in hand. So in 1903, the college also experienced one of its many, many financial crises. And it is likely that a year-long series of composite lectures propounding medical orthodoxy was not only viewed as a pedagogic necessity, but also as a calculated commercial venture. This was an attempt to compensate for areas of medical uncertainty by tempting fee-paying postgraduates with the appealing prospect of orthodox knowledge. But financial motivations aside for now, this focus on the present state of knowledge suggests that practitioners have begun to contextualise the symptoms of individual patients within a more coherent and holistic theoretical framework. And it also suggests that they had begun to adopt a correspondingly holistic pedagogical approach. Composite lectures were not forums in which to propound original views, but to clearly state accepted knowledge and practice pertaining to the clinical subject under discussion. So in 1904, these lectures included gonorrhea in women, what is syphilitic in two lectures on the relationship of syphilis to insanity. And in those later lectures, Tabis Dorsalis figured prominently. Lectures given in January of 1906 included some unusual manifestations of syphilis, syphilis of the nervous system, and the prophylaxis of venereal diseases. The mandate of the composite lecture series suggests the content covered was believed to be representative of venereological orthodoxy. And the only transcript of these lectures I've been able to find is for the prophylaxis of venereal diseases. And it was given by uh, um, James Lane, who was a surgeon to the London Lock Hospital. And he drew upon the research that he was both doing at the London Lock Hospital, but also on sort of accepted medical knowledge surrounding venereal diseases, as well as wider ideas about the way... Um, practitioners should be involved in the prevention and treatment of these diseases at a public health level. That the college needed to market its new composite lecture series in terms of medical orthodoxy suggests that the content of normal clinical lectures was, to some extent, left to the discretion of each lecturer. According to the Polyclinic, the college enjoyed the services of men of undoubted authority who have made certain subjects their own and who constitute a sort of, quote, court of appeal. However, in March 1901, the college also regretted that, quote, the training of medical students in practical diagnosis and in the knowledge of disease was still conducted far too much in a haphazard manner. So the information conveyed to postgraduates during the college's normal clinical lectures and demonstrations was often the product of that lecturer's unique professional experience. Lecturers may have been authorities in their specialist fields, and may have introduced students to new cutting-edge ideas in diagnosis and treatment. However, the flexibility given to lecturers to present their own findings meant that the knowledge being disseminated was, on occasion, inconsistent. And such inconsistencies suggest that these fields were not always epistemologically cohesive, hence the need for a composite lecture series. The process of knowledge dissemination at the college, and in medical practice more broadly, could be described as an attempt to rationalise medical uncertainties. Lecturers were not simply reiterating medical orthodoxies, but were also speculating over new specialised ideas. They drew upon their own clinical experience and the work of their contemporaries in the instruction of postgraduates. So I couldn't go into it today, but Frederick Mock was one of the leading proponents of these new ideas surrounding neurosyphilis at the time, and a lot of other lecturers at the polyclinic drew upon those ideas in their teaching of postgraduates. If you want to ask me about that later, I'm happy to expound on it. Um, 
Such an approach to medical education at the college inevitably produced inconsistencies as lecturers and postgraduates sought the best diagnostic and therapeutic methods and attempted to clarify the etiology of various venereal conditions. Despite such problems, the college and institutionalised postgraduate education more broadly provided an important channel through which orthodox and innovative venereological knowledge could be disseminated. It drew upon emerging specialisms and in so doing built upon the generalist training that practitioners had received at an undergraduate level. These institutions did much to further the study of venereal diseases. By becoming accepted channels for further education general, um, for general, among general practitioners, these institutions also established the legitimacy of postgraduate study, especially in disciplines such as venereology that were given only cursory attention at an undergraduate level. Their establishment marked an important shift in conceptions of medical knowledge and education. A general practitioner's uh, training was no longer thought to necessarily end with undergraduate study. Postgraduate training recognised the fact that a practitioner's knowledge, in fact, needed to be constantly refreshed and augmented in systematised ways that could not necessarily be achieved simply in the course of general practice. Thank you.